0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing today? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up nice and high. We'll make sure that you get one. We got a tough. We got some tough stuff to talk about today. So you're going to want the Bible with you, so you can track with me. Um, hey, a uh, couple of announcements. First of all, um, got a book to give away. You know that when we do this, we have rules. Um, God is all about grace. We are all about law. So we have rules here. The rules are: what's rule number one? You have to read it. Rule number two: pass it along. They don't get to collect on the shelves. So this is: if you're looking for a podcast to read, let me highly recommend, look up Pastor Eric Mason of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. Man, he will put fire in your soul for Jesus, trust me. Man, this guy's amazing. Wrote a book called Manhood Restored, How the Gospel Makes Men Whole. And I'm just curious, anyone sit down, he's all looking at me, he's positioning, he doesn't know what I'm about to do. Who went to man camp? Right here, you got one? You get one in here? Uh, Oh, Nice. You'd move for no reason. It's man camp day. I'm sorry, but did you go to man camp? Are we grace or law? Oh, we got a man camp guy begging over here. <laughs> there you go, buddy. All right, there we go. Eric Mason, Epiphany Fellowship. Look him up. A um, couple of other announcements. Hey, high school missions trip. If your kids are interested in going with Pastor Jeremy and the gang down to Mexico, where we support the kids down in Carmen Serdán, there's an informational meeting right after this service. Make sure that you check that out. I believe it's in the coffee shop, I think. Yeah? Yes, in the coffee shop. Oh, right there where you wrote it for me, Aaron. Thank you. (laughs) Also, um, single moms, you have a Mother's Day dinner. If there are any single moms or if you know of some single moms, there's a free Mother's Day dinner. It's going to be at the Hub. That's our offices right over here across the way. Um, That is on Saturday night, May 13th from 6 to 9. Child care is free. Meals are free. But space is limited, so we do need you to sign up. So uh, stop by the information desk or the Connect desk on your way out if you would. Uh, flip side of 50 group, your potluck and volleyball is canceled. Um, you are having a Dutch lunch instead at Wild River Pizza and Brewing. So uh, that is today. So check out the bulletin for information, and that is all for today. So if you would, grab your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read about some stuff. Harsh- uh, okay, I'm cheating today, just so you know. Um, we're supposed to be in the text part about parenting, which might explain there's a lot. It seems like we have a good turnout today. Did you drag your kids in here for expecting this particular text? That's next week. I'm going out of order. It's Mother's Day next week. It just works. So we're going to do that. So we are skipping ahead, but I'm going to read the whole section, and it's a tricky one. But in honor of God's word, would you join me on your feed? And let's read from Colossians 3, verses 18 through 4, verse 1. for the Lord, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you shall receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just uh, come before you in a very difficult, tricky, um, historically complicated passage of scripture and we ask for your clarity we ask for understanding we ask for application we ask lord that your spirit would just minister in this room that you would awaken hearts and minds to you and affections for you even in a text such as this i pray god against anything that would would seek to 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 distract us from your word this morning And may even our posture right now, even in a text like this, be indicative, Lord, of our hearts. That we would not seek to lord over your word to make it fit some paradigm we want it to. But, Father, may we um, just trust you and may your word lord over our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. We're going to talk about slavery today. Um. There is no wisdom in pretending something bad doesn't exist. There's no wisdom in that. I don't know if you've ever been one of those people like you feel something hurting somewhere and you want to go to the doctor because you feel like something's wrong. But then you don't want to go to the doctor because you feel like something's wrong. You know what I mean? Like you would rather wonder than know sometimes. And sometimes we just, oh, I'll just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. But there's really not a lot of wisdom in pretending something doesn't exist. So I have a great example of this that I've always thought was kind of a fun story. That um, When I was in college, um, spring break came up and a guy who had graduated before us had a place. He was living the good life. He was down in Key West, Florida. Or not actually on Key West, but like one of the other Keys, you know, that string of islands down off the tip of Florida, and so we went down to stay with him, and his house was right on the waterway, and I mean, it's almost like this stage, he would have green lawn with palm trees, all this stuff, and it went right up to a rock wall, and that just went straight down, and it was just ocean, because the boats would come in right past his house, so it was dredged out, and a wall built, and all that went deep, like you couldn't see the bottom deep. And it was amazing. So he, he was like, you guys want lobster for dinner? And we're like, of course, <laughs> dumb question. Of course I want lobster for dinner. He's like, then let's get some. And he grabbed snorkels. And we literally would put a snorkel in fins and get a net, and we would jump in the water right there, swim down as far as you could, because the wall part went down six or eight feet, and then it was just rock and coral and all that kind of stuff. And you would go down there, and there were, they call them spiny lobsters in Florida, They don't have the big pinchers, and you would get a net kind of behind them and spook them, and they would just shoot right in the net. You'd twist off the thing, swim up to the surface, lobster. And we'd get like 12 of them. Like, it was amazing. Just free lobster right off the thing. And so we're eating like kings. It was beautiful. It was an amazing time. So then one night, he's like, you want to do something different? Want to catch shark?" Is a fat baby fat? Of course I want to catch shark, man. Let's catch some shark. So we, we actually go to a bait shop and we bought chum. You can buy chum. It, just fish guts frozen in a block. You buy a chum net, put the block in the net and tie it off. We didn't even have a rope to use. We literally tied it to the end of his garden hose and took the chum bag and just chucked it out into the water right there and went to dinner. We came back from dinner, he takes these rods, he puts some bait and stuff on there, throws the stuff out there, like, hey, all right, let's go. And we could not stop catching shark. Like, over and over and over, we're catching these sharks. Most of them were bonnethead sharks, which look exactly like hammerheads. So, they're hammerheads. I mean, that's really what you're, oh, it's curved in the front. Big deal. Sharp teeth, hammerhead. That's what we were catching. And then we were catching reef shark that were up to, like, five feet, and over and over and over and over. And it was awesome. Until we went swimming the next day. Because then all you're thinking about is what's down there, and you can't see nothing, and it just fades into blue. And you're in the water, and the only sound you hear in your head is what? Da da. That's right. Da da. World's scariest song, only two notes. Da da. That's all it was. And so we're swimming, and we're all nervous. We're like, okay, let's. Let's go get the lobster, and you get the stuff on, and you jump in. The bubbles are there. You just know there's a shark coming. You just see. You're just waiting to see that mouth come up. You know. You'd swim down, and we were way faster this time. Like, uh, don't see one, back up, and you just out of the water, boom, right onto the shore. Like that. That's how fast you're trying to get out of the water. And that's all we could think about was sharks. And the guy said to me, said to me, he said to us, he was like, guys, just calm down. Just forget that they're there. Forget about it. Just pretend they're not there. Don't worry about it. That's just dumb advice. That's just because me pretending sharks aren't down there doesn't change the fact that sharks are down there, right? I mean, lots of sharks were down there. So we know they're around, and his whole philosophy of wisdom was just pretend they're not there, it'll all go away. That's bad wisdom. That's a bad idea. Pretending they're not there doesn't mean they're not there, doesn't make them go away, does not change the reality that somewhere below us, we're sharks. Well, that can happen with the Bible too, especially in a text like this. There's things that are in the Bible that are difficult. Sometimes there's things in the Bible that we don't understand. Pretending they're not there doesn't make them go away and doesn't help you understand or even know how to deal with them when things come up later. I experienced this growing up because I, I grew up in a church that in some ways gave me a great biblical foundation for understanding the scriptures. In some ways, it left me grossly unprepared. And so when I went off to college and there were texts that we had avoided forever, difficult texts, controversial texts, things like that, and my, old, my advice all along was, oh, God will work it out. Just trust God. That's what's written. That's what it says. We just trust God. And And then you sort of ignore and don't understand these things. And then I went to college, and I was faced with questions I didn't have answers to. And so I took an ethics class right away at North Carolina State University, and the professor there, um, it's ethics, so things are going to come up. And he had a document prepared that he would readily and regularly give out to anyone that he met that was a Christian. And this document, it was really about five pages long, typed, prepared, I mean, he had it ready to go all the time was all the issues he had with Christianity, all the reasons that he couldn't believe the Bible, just different things that were listed in there. And one of the primary, one of the first ones that you would come to, and it came up over and over and over going through the text, was the issue of slavery. He said, I I cannot follow a faith or a religion whose foundational document endorses slavery. This is what he said. I I didn't have a whole lot of answers for that. And and this is common. It's not just what that professor will do. There are a lot of people that will take one thing in the Bible, they'll take one thing out of context sometimes, and they'll say, this is the foundation upon which I'm building all the reasons that I'm not going to follow Jesus. And it'll be slavery the bible endorses slavery it promotes slavery it's wrong we all know it's wrong we've all advanced long enough in society we all know that it's wrong so because of slavery and then they build around that framework and then all the hypocrites and all the other issues that christians have had over the years but they'll take sometimes that one thing and they'll kind of champion that thing this professor his or one of his was slavery so we're going to face it kind of head on today we're going to talk a little bit about the reality of how the Bible addresses slavery, and it, it's a difficult topic. So, so let's not act like it's not there, okay? So here's some realities that we have to admit. Um, I'm going I'm to read off a few things to you that are in the Bible concerning slavery, or that aren't in the Bible concerning slavery, that you cannot argue with if people throw them out at you, okay? The first one is this. Nowhere in the Bible is there a verse that condemns slavery, it doesn't exist. So you can go all through the scriptures you want. You can try to build the whole, this is why slavery's gone in the first place, because of the Bible. But if you're looking for a verse to point to, to say, see, look, God is against slavery. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. Second, humans are considered property in some places in the scripture. They are. Exodus 12, Exodus 21, Leviticus 22, other places. Humans are considered property in places. Uh, third, Foreign slaves in Israel were never given their year of release. We'll get to this again in a moment, but there was a particular year that would come up in the Jewish calendar where if you had slaves, God commanded that they be released. It never happened. Never happened. Um, Slaves were used to produce children for infertile owners. There's stories of it in the Bible, where if you were a slave owner and you couldn't have a child or your wife wasn't able to have a child, you could grab the slave that you had there, or they would grab the slave they had, and they would use that, and that was even used in certain lineages that are presented in the Bible, amongst people who are examples of faith, even. Um, Engaged slaves, if raped, were paid off. Now, here's, here's why this is significant. If a slave was engaged to someone else and she was raped, the compensation or dealing with that injustice that had happened to the slave is that the slave who was raped and her fiance would be paid off a certain monetary amount uh, by the person who had committed this act now you go well, see they're standing up for them well except for the fact that when you realize if the exact same thing happened to a freed couple in the scriptures they were killed slaves only paid off that's in the bible um, slave owners are permitted to beat their slaves as long as the slave survives. There's texts about that in the scriptures. And biblical legislation contains inequality on value placed on slaves in comparison to freedmen's lives. That's all in the Bible. So if anyone ever comes to you and they want to talk about the issue of slavery and the things that are in scripture, and they want to bring some of those things up, and your answer is, uh uh-uh, uh, no, it's not. Yes. Yes, it is. Now, the problem with this and the the reason that people even cling to, especially in our day and our context, um, the the issue of slavery as one of the reasons they don't want to follow Jesus is because when we think of slavery, we go instantly to European colonialism. That's instantly what we think of when we think of slavery. That's the context that we're most familiar with. That's what, in many ways, our country was even built on. So we think of... Europeans shoving Africans in the bottom of a boat, doing they the Middle Passage, taking them across the ocean in terrible conditions, making them work in tobacco fields, making them work in cotton fields, beating them, sometimes downright killing them. That's what we tend to think of with regards to slavery. Um, We understand slavery based on our experience, and and I guess you would say to a lesser extent, though connected, um, England's experience as well, because that's kind of where America came from and the colonialism that all happened there. The reality is slavery has been around much, much longer than that. And actually, and this is in no way justification whatsoever, but in in actuality, England was one of the last to get on board with slavery at all. They resisted it for a really, really long time. In fact, Portugal and Spain were making tons of money off of the slave trade, and England refused to. Um, There's a story in 1540, um, an Englishman pirated, hijacked a Portuguese ship that had slaves in it and sailed the ship into the Caribbean sold the slaves off to a sugar field that was there to be used as servants there on, uh, in the sugar fields there where England was getting their sugar from. At the time, England sugared or sweetened everything with honey. And sugar was a big deal. It was a huge thing that they would get out of there and they would bring back into England. Well, the Queen of England found out about this. And when she heard what had happened by English people, she, and these are her words, I promise you, not mine, she said, that's what those Catholics do, not us. And by Catholic, she meant the Italians or the Portuguese at the time who were already doing that. She was furious that English people had become involved in the slave trade. But over time, this whole idea of, and it was primarily slavery with regards to European colonialism, was originally an issue of sugar, not tobacco and not cotton. And so they, over time, they were using even Irishmen to come in and do the labor in these fields. Problem is, Irish people are like ultra-white ultra-white, and were almost spontaneously combusting in the fields, frankly, when they were there work like it just was not working out, and they were not doing well, and over time, England began to look around at what some of the other countries were do. They saw the work ethic of the Africans, they saw the climate similarities and all those sorts of things, and eventually they got on board. And it started with America, actually, in 1619 in a place called Jamestown. You guys know this. It was a swampy, mosquito-infested hell-on-earth kind of a place, just a dank place, no slavery. And then one day, another pirate ship, interestingly enough, comes in. It was in 1619. A pirate ship came in. They were starving, and they had 20 slaves on the ship. And they pitched it to the people of Jamestown, and they traded 20 slaves for food, and slavery was introduced to the U.S. And the horrors that took place after that are undeniable, Totally documented, inarguable, unjustifiable, wrong, evil, wickedness that took place in our country against a specific, uh, mostly a specific race of people, though there were Chinese slaves as well and some other smaller ethnicities, but primarily African Americans that experienced absolute horrors. And the honest truth that we have to admit is that this book that you're holding in your hand and we are studying today was used to do that. People used these books, and they used the text even like what we're studying today, as justification to continue to do what they did. There's no denying that. We can argue it all we want. Historically true. True. But we need to understand the differences between European colonialism and that sort of slavery. Now again, I'm not justifying it and I'm not detaching the fact that Christians use the Bible to do that. Okay, But the slavery that is spoken of in the scriptures is completely different in many, many ways from European colonialism that they were using the scriptures to commit those atrocities in those days. Let me give you some examples of some ways this is different. Number one, enslaved people in the Bible could not be identified by their ethnicity. Um, There was no like, if you're in the South in the, the days of the plantations and slavery and all this stuff, if you're in Alabama or South Carolina and a black man walks down the street, he's not a business guy. He was a slave. That was a really fair assumption to make in that day. You could not do the same thing in Biblical with the slavery that's referred to and spoken about in the Bible. It wasn't an issue of ethnicity. It was more socioeconomic than anything. It was not an ethnic or a race based thing in the way colonialism was. Um, Number two, cultural and religious traditions of the slaves were the same as their owners in the Bible. So think about it. Um, In America you had white, former English colonials that are running plantations that are now being staffed by slaves that are coming from Africa. Doesn't take much of a history major to understand those are two significantly different cultures, right? And those cultures actually mattered. The way that they lived out mattered. In fact, we were at a conference just this week in Reno with Acts 29, and um, they brought in a pastor from Denver, Colorado. It was one of the most powerful teachings I've ever heard in my life with regards to um, race and racial reconciliation. It was just like a nuclear bomb that, that went off in the room. It was incredible. And um, he he was even talking about some of the history things that even go on to this day in our culture that were because of the cultural differences back then. So, for example, if you've ever been blessed, and I do mean this, you should do this: have a chance to go, especially in the South, to a um, predominantly black. Uh, especially Southern Baptist kind of church service in the South. If you ever get a chance to do this, I highly recommend it. It it will change. You're going to be like, man, we're doing it wrong. It will change so many uh, ways you view passion and worship and all these kind of things. But I'll tell you this, pack a lunch. It's a long experience. I've been, we went at like 9 a.m. We were still in church at 2. No joke. Do you know why that is? because the slaves in the plantations were allowed to have church services. And the longer they could drag the church services out, that's time that they weren't spending having to go back into the fields or go back and deal with what was going on there. There's reasons for some of that stuff. It's pretty fascinating. But the idea is in the scriptures, the cultures of slave and master are the same. Because they were coming out of the culture that they were a part of. It was not this go to Africa, take people, bring them here, make them be slaves. It was a completely different experience. Number three, the education of a slave in the ancient Near East was considered a wise investment. Um, in, in the South, you, you didn't want your slaves to learn how to read. You didn't want to teach them how to read. They're just tools. That's all. Keep them strong so that they can do the work you need, and that's it. But in these days, in the biblical models of slavery, it was considered a wise investment to educate your slave. That's why men like Daniel and Joseph are in the Bible and are able to elevate themselves to where they become number two in the entire nation that they're a part of. Because men recognize their talents, men recognize their abilities, and they actually invested in them. Um, and that was just considered a wise use of investment. Um, number four, ancient, ancient owners did not view their slaves paternalistically. So let me explain that. Much of slavery in America actually lasted as long as it did because of a sinful and very prejudicial paternalistic view towards African Americans. And and it would it would be like this. We have to just leave them here. If we don't take care of them, they can't take care of themselves. And it was this really condemning condescending we know what's best for them even as slaves we we have to take care of them that actually predominant or became very predominant in the slave trade and it extended the slave trade to some degree because blacks were viewed as people who had so little ability to take care of themselves because they were viewed as like animals or property that's not the case in biblical examples of slavery. There is never anywhere in Scripture this paternalistic, we know better than them, we will control them, and it's actually in their best interest that we do. You never see any of that in the Bible. Um, number five, in Near East people, in the Near East, people often sold themselves into slavery because of debt. So this is interesting. In the biblical cultures that we study, Slaves were not the bottom rung on the ladder the way that they were in the American colonialism days. They weren't. The day worker was actually lower. A guy who was busting his tail, struggling to survive, looking for work, begging for work, those sorts of things, was even lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And so many times because of debt and things that they had, it was a step up. To sell yourself into slavery. Again, not American experience slavery. Biblical experience slavery. It was a step up to sell yourself into slavery. To pay off debts that you were a part of. This is why if you think about it. Jeremy just led us through last week. That a great, great teaching through the story of the prodigal son. Think about it. Here's this son who's squandered his living. He's off in these pigsties. And he, what does he start thinking? It's, it's better to be a servant in my father's house than to be here where I am. It was a step up. And not to mention, you might get educated through the whole process. Very different from American colonial slavery. Um, What number am I on? That was number five. Number six, biblical holidays were extended to slaves. All the feasts, all the celebrations... All the things, religious uh, observances that the Bible, um, that were given to the Jewish people were extended to the slaves. It's not like um, just the Jews went and did their work, but the slaves had to, or I'm sorry, the, the Jews went and celebrated and feasted and all the slaves just have to keep serving them. No, on the Sabbath, on all those days, everyone was off. That was the idea. It, everyone was given those same breaks. Number seven, no interest loans were prescribed by God to control slave debt. So, if I'm, if I'm in... in debt and I'm a day laborer and I cannot possibly figure out how I'm ever going to be able to pay this off. I could go to Craig and say, Craig I would like to sell myself into servitude for you. I've got $20,000 worth of debt I don't know how I'm going to pay it off. Craig would pay that debt off and then I'm his slave while that debt is being done. What Craig cannot do is say, okay I'll take care of that. $20,000 plus 20% interest. You work that off and then we'll set you free. It wasn't allowed. The slave, the uh, pastor, or excuse me, God prescribed to the people of Israel um, rules governing that stuff so that the the debt just didn't keep increasing and become like a credit card that they could never get out of. Um, Number eight, there was the year of Jubilee, where all the slaves in Israel, when the year of Jubilee came, were to be released and set free. And this is really significant because, think about this, When they were set free, the slaves, as they were sent, it wasn't just like you let them go, but the masters were even supposed to give the slaves financial assistance to help them go out and start a new life on their own and get up on their feet because he was worried that they would become slaves again. So it was never a system that was supposed to keep building the wealth of one person. In many ways, it was almost like a welfare system, at least in certain cultural instances here. Um, there were limitations based on the severity of punishments. Um, masters are constantly commanded to care for their slaves, as we'll see here in just a little while, to actually care for. Not, not care for like, I want to keep them strong so they can go deal with the cotton, but to care for them in a holistic way all around, as just as a human being, as a shepherd, you might say. Um, number 11, Scripture forbids. This one's important, okay? Scripture forbids the kidnapping of foreigners as slaves. Okay, so when people say the Bible does not condemn slavery, remember they're thinking of American, European colonialism slavery. But that type of slavery is actually condemned in the Bible. Israel was not to go raid other lands and take all of their people and then begin selling them into slavery for their own people. In fact, the nation of Israel intended to be a sanctuary for slaves. So if you were a slave in another culture and you were rescued or you broke free or, or whatever the case may be, and, and think of what a precursor to the gospel this is. God's message to you was, if you make it to my people, you'll be free. A total picture of the gospel that was to come. So Israel was not to go take people and sell them into slavery. They were to be a sanctuary for the slaves to be able to come in and find salvation. Also, Israel, um, excuse me, Paul and Philemon witnesses to a slave and sets him free. And he says, I send you back, not as slave, but as brother. This guy Philemon was a slave who escapes, comes to Paul. Paul witnesses to him. He hears the gospel. And what does Paul do? Paul sets him free. He says, this is my relationship with this guy because the gospel has changed now. And I'm sending him back where he came from. But not his slave, not his brother. That's why Paul will write, there's no more Jew, nor Greek, nor freed, nor slave. He will write about and then, And this is the one that I think is going to apply maybe the most for the text that we're looking at today. Number 14. Biblical passages always command concern for the weaker party from the stronger. In every area of authority that exists throughout the scripture, in every area of authority, God always commands the person in authority is charged with actually caring and showing concern for the person in the weaker position. Which clearly was the American colonialism experience with slavery. The slave was property to build the wealth of the master. And that's it. But that's not the case. In the Bible. Consider the text we're in right now. We're in Colossians, and we're in this thing we just did a couple of weeks ago. Don't judge me on this if you weren't at the sermon, go back and listen to it two weeks ago. But we talked about wives submit to your husbands. There's an authority placed there. And then what's the very next verse? Husbands don't be harsh with them. And then as you'll see next week, parents, children obey your parents. There's authority that's granted there. And then what's the next verse say? Hey, fathers, don't exasperate your children, don't drive them to wrath. Don't abuse your authority. And now we come into slaves and masters, and slaves are told, unequivocally, hard to argue, it's right here in the text, that they're to obey obey their masters, but then there's the follow-up text that comes in and says, hey, masters, remember that you serve God too. So always in the Bible, with regards to slavery or any other um, authoritative institution, the person in power is charged with caring for the person who does not. Now the problem is is that most people, when they grab that, whether it be slavery or what other cause it might be, they don't wanna do that work. So they'll take that one verse and instead of stepping back and like, hey, let's understand scripture as a whole, and, and see how this all fits in, they look at it as that one verse stands all on its own and doesn't need connections to anything else. Therefore, the Bible justifies slavery. It's not true. That's why we need to know the whole Bible. That's why things like biblical theology are important. <laughs> because otherwise, you can take a passage like, wives, submit to your husbands, and use it to beat them. But that is not the thrust of Scripture. Amen? And so, yes, Christians used this Bible and used this text to justify, condone, promote, and profit from slavery. But the rest of history also is a little more encouraging because it was also Christians who saw the difference. It was also Christians in history who understood these things about issues regarding slavery and race and all that in the Bible and then saw the way it was being used in the culture around them and said, these things are not congruent, this is wrong. Men like William Wilberforce Men like John Newton. Now, William Wilberforce is a fascinating historical study. Highly recommend you do some reading. And granted, imperfect people all through Scripture are being used to accomplish God's purposes. But William Wilberforce, um, he was an English politician who actually believed God is Lord of everything... God is sovereign over everything. God gave me specific talents and ability and gave me a specific job. And I don't mean job like theoretically. Like he gave me a job to do something in life. I mean he gave me this specific job as politician in Europe for the very purpose of ending the slave trade. He believed very much like Esther in the Bible where it says that for such a time as this, he was placed in that role specifically to end the slave trade. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. I think that's funny. The reformation of manners and the suppression of the slave trade. And then, now keep in mind, this idea of here's something we don't like, let's just pretend it's not there. Listen to what William Wilberforce said. This is in a speech to the House of Commons in England in 1789. He said, Sir, the nature and all the circumstances of this trade are now laid open to us. We can no longer plead ignorance. We cannot evade it. It is now an object placed before us and we cannot pass it. We may spurn it. We may kick it out of our way, but we cannot turn aside so as to avoid seeing it. For it is brought now so directly before our eyes that this house must decide and must justify to all the world and to their own consciences the rectitude of the grounds and principles of their decision. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. This man believed that God had given him a mission and a calling. And see, for England, it was so easy for England to promote slavery because it was so far away. They didn't see it. It wasn't right there where they were. There was a, a man, I, I forget his name, but he's a, a famous theologian, and he once wrote, Who cares so much about slavery as long as we have our cake? And he meant that sarcastically. They just got the sugar, they just got the wealth. They didn't see all the other horrors that were going on, but once they understood what was actually taking place, men like William Wilberforce, men like John Newton, they were like, this is not okay. And so it was Christians who understood the realities of Scripture and its mandates on how to treat people that actually led the charge and shed blood and put themselves against an entire culture to end the type of slavery that people tend to think of when they say, this is why I can't follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Are we following this? So... In no way does that justify what happened, and in no way am I trying to separate the reality that it was also Christians on the other side holding up their Bibles going, you don't know what you're talking about. Where's my slave? So I'm not separating the two, but it's important for us to understand the differences, right? Because those questions are actually out there. So now, cool Jeff, text is about slavery, that's great, Bibles against that kind of mistreatment of people. And slavery is illegal now thanks to men like William Wilberforce and all that kind of stuff. So what do we do with this? Well, first and foremost, and and this is somewhat of a disclaimer because the implications of this text would not apply um, directly to this scenario. Let me just say this. Don't think for a second that slavery is gone. Like, don't think for a second that slavery doesn't still exist. Everything from undocumented immigrant workers to the sex trade Slavery exists. It still exists. And so we as Christians should maintain the same type of drive that men like William Wilberforce had that said this is not okay. Amen? But for the rest of us, if you're not in a place where you're dealing with sex trafficking, you're not in a place where, you know, you're dealing with any of those kind of things, um, I guess we can just call it a sermon and go home. Right, Jeff? Well, no, not so much. The context of this text, if I can remind you, is the lordship and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul has been building the case the whole time. It's the whole point. The the supremacy of Jesus. This city, Colossae, is a trade crossroad. There are all sorts of gods, all sorts of religious beliefs, all sorts of cultures, all sorts of backgrounds. And beliefs are mixing together. Remember, it was called syncretism. All these beliefs are getting pulled together. And Paul is elevating Jesus Christ above them all and saying, This is God. He is above all things. He is before all things. He is preeminent. He created all things. All things exist for him. He holds all things together. He is Lord over everything. And so if you believe that, church, do you believe that? You're answering that cautiously because you know I'm setting you up. Let me try that again. Church, do you believe that? If you believe that Jesus is Lord over all, then, what you have to stop once in a while and remember is that Jesus is Lord over all. All. Marriages, parenting, children, relationships, workers, co workers, slaves, masters. There is no area of our life that God is not supreme and rules over. And you can pretend that He's not. You can go, I just won't think about that. It's not really there. But He's there. He is Lord. He does rule and he does reign. And if we do believe that, Christian, then our understanding of these things, of the lordship of Jesus, has to apply to every single area of our life. There's a theologian named Stephen Barton. And in his book on biblical hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is just the, the study of scripture, how we understand and interpret scripture. The, in his book on this, he says this. And this is a great quote. Lean in on this one. The primary place of moral formation and social duty is not inside the temple, but outside of it. Hear that again. The primary place of moral formation and social duty is not inside the temple, but outside of it. In other words, you could say, as important as what we do on a Sunday morning in here is, more important is what happens outside the walls of this church than inside. You can make that case. Now granted, God commands the gathering together of believers in worship. And the primary thing that we do here when we gather together is we are worshiping and exalting God and spreading the gospel through that. Those things are commanded and they are important. Amen? But there's more that happens here too. We've always used the example here, if you've been around Heritage for a while, you've probably heard this. We've always used the example of a huddle. That's why we even call our community groups huddle groups. And the idea is this. What we're doing right now is a huddle. It's not the game. We're doing the huddle. I mean, think about it in terms of a basketball game. Games going on. It's playoffs right now. There's going to be games today. So you're going to watch the game on TV. At some point, coach calls timeout, and everybody comes together, and they huddle up. And think about what is it that happens. Coach gets out the playbook. He gives instruction to the players. Sometimes the instruction is super encouraging. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus loves you. Sometimes the instruction's a little more forceful. Knock it off. Depends on how the game's going, right? And then there's all these other things and you could spiritualize them at all. We're gonna get a cu- we're gonna get some water. Water is a great symbol in the Bible. We're gonna get some fresh water, we're gonna get some fresh air for just a moment and, and, and get right synced back together on the same team so that we understand again what is gonna happen. But in the end, the point is that you put your hands together in the middle and ready, break, and then you go play the game. No one buys tickets to just watch huddles. They're not the thing. They're important. It's a necessary part of the game, but they're not the game. They might affect how the game gets played, but they're not the game. And what David Barton, or excuse me, Stephen Barton is saying here is that the primary place of spiritual formation is actually outside. In other words, this. We come here together, and we get instruction, and we worship, and we rally together, but what makes you you, and what makes you who you're going to be, and how all these things play out, that happens outside the walls of the church, not in here. And so, implied in that, then, is what? God cares just as much, if not more, about what happens in our lives outside the walls of this church than he does in here right now. He's Lord over that, too. And see, we have, let's use the word segregation. We have this history of segregation. And I don't just mean races, I mean spiritual and secular will separate these two things. And so these things are the secular things, our work, paying the bills, coaching little league, whatever the case may be. These are the spiritual things over here. Church on Sunday, VBS for a week of summer, uh, youth camp if you're still in that age demographic, those kind of things. If you're really killing it, that 30-minute devotion in the morning, that's spiritual time. But sports center while you're eating your oatmeal is not. That's secular. We'll separate those. And, you know, we, just separating all of these things. And we make the spiritual world and we make the secular world. But scripture screams, there's no such thing as secular. It is all God's domain, and God's concerned about all of them. So when we come to these texts, whether it's husbands and wives, whether it's children and parents, whether it's boss, co-worker, as we're going to apply it, or whether it's slave, master, God is still sovereign and involved even in those things. Now, this is a text about slavery. There's no denying that. And to act like it's not is to not do the text service. But it doesn't mean that the implications are not there and aren't helpful for us as well. Because if God would say to a slave, hey, do all things as if you were honoring me, how much so would he say it to us? How much more are we responsible for knowing what we know now? And so we can these things in the same thing. And you go, no, no don't, don't confuse church and work, Jeff, because I've come to church to worship and I go to work to work. And I would say to you, your work is worship. Your work is worship. Your work is sacred. Your workspace is sacred. As is your home. As is the places you hang out. As is everywhere you go. There is not one, what's the Abraham Kuyper quote? There's not one square inch on this earth that the Lord does not stand over and scream, Mine. He's Lord of all. And so he affects the relationships in the way that we interact with other people. And so, what is it that he has to say with this? One more disclosure, by the way, or disclaimer, excuse me. Um, Stay at home moms. Stay at home moms can, for very good reasons, have a tendency to hear a sermon that's going into work and just go, this one's not for me. And the reason is, is because they usually haven't been made for you. And I would tell you, what you do is sacred. What you do is just as, I don't want your job. I sometimes look forward to going to work because I don't want your job. What you do is hard, what you do is Honorable. We will honor that even more next week on Mother's Day. But everything that we are talking about has the exact same implications in your home as it does in your husband's office. No one is beneath the other. And actually, most of us who do other jobs are able to do that because of the service and sacrifice that many moms actually take on themselves willingly, setting their own dreams, their own aspirations, their own hopes aside to be able to take care of family and home. And that is an incredible, Jesus-like, gospel, non-self-centered sacrifice that cannot be exalted and honored enough. Amen? Everyone else, amen? Amen. Okay, so you're part of this. Stay with me on that, all right? I'm going to use examples by default that are oftentimes just the ones I'm most familiar with, but you're in this with me. Amen? And honestly, I have the least real job out of anyone in this room. Okay, So let's track with me. All right, What does he say? Colossians 3 verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know what that means? Let's go a little bit of a time. Obey your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. That means don't just work when the boss is watching. It means don't, don't just work hard because boss is there. But if he's out of town on a business meeting or whatever the case may be, you get to kick back. That's, that's not how Christians work. A Christian who understands that God is Lord over all doesn't do that. That's what he's saying. What about people pleasers? Got any people pleasers in the room? Don't raise your hand because you'll disappoint someone you're trying to please. Um, <laughs> I'm with you on that. Trust me. People pleasing. This is what that means. It means you're not simply striving for the affirmation and the approval of the person that you work for either. So, you're, you're also not just laying down every element of your life, just begging for approval from a boss or even the paycheck that comes from the boss. You're, you're not seeking approval from them. You're taking the job seriously and you're working hard, but your idol is not the approval that comes from that job. Does that make sense? That's not what you're doing. But you're to work with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. And so here, here's what tends to happen. We tend to justify our work ethic based on the people that are in our office. So we would say, man, my boss is a jerk. And he's hard on me. And he does, I, they only pay me probably 60% of what I'm owed anyway. So I'm going to give him 60% of my effort and we'll be cool. But God doesn't let you do that, does he? Look what the text says. With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not men. Paul pushes past the culture that you're a part of, even at work, and says, it doesn't matter if your boss is a jerk or if your culture is just a bunch of people that are slacking off, your ultimate master isn't the guy in your office anyway, it's Jesus who is Lord over all, and that's what governs your work ethic. So you approach your work differently. We don't slack off when the boss is gone just for that not We don't... We don't mail it in from time to time. If your two week notice has been turned in, you're not just kicking back with your feet on the desk because it doesn't matter. You're not going to be there. Even the way you leave a job matters. You might be the only Christian there. You might be just like William Wilberforce. It might be that your job is way more about something else other than whatever your job actually is. Your job might actually be about the fact that there's people in there that are important to God, that are destined to be in the kingdom of heaven, and you're the guy that God has raised up for such a time as this to be in that place, to be a light to the world, to be the one to whom they look at as an example of what Christians are really like. So don't sleep on that. That's a big calling. And 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 don't take that on as burden because if you're burdening yourself with him, that's Satan telling you this is gonna be too hard. Because Jesus says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're receiving the, the commendations of Scripture as heavy, someone else has your ear. Don't let him. Don't let him. So you might be the only Christian there. And remember, work is precursor, work is holy. Before the fall of man, there was work with God. This is a continuation of what we do. And then look what verse 24 says. And hear this through the ears of a slave. Verse 24, well, verse 23, actually. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive. Receive what? What do slaves receive? Beatings? Punishment for poor work? Not inheritance. If you are property, kind of hard to understand how you then inherit property. And yet, look what God says. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He says, your, your motivation is not your paycheck. They don't pay me what I'm worth. Okay, you know, do the best you can, but you, that's not why you're working there anyway. Do the best you can. Make all the money you have, but the money's not your idol. The position's not your idol. The affirmation's not your idol. You're living for Jesus. You're serving Jesus, and you're living for the reward he promises you on the other end of that, which I assure you, he pays well. This is what he's called us to do. And now there's the transition verse. Verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And here's why this is a transition verse. If you're the slave... He's telling you, hey, that boss that's mistreating you, that master that's mistreating you, just remember. Because in the tendency, if I work hard, no matter what kind of guy he is, he's just going to keep getting away with it. And God's like, no, he's not. I'm here. But he doesn't believe in you. Tell him good luck with that. But I'm still here. And I'm still just. And I will repay. That's what the slave hears. Here's why it's transition. There's a flip side of it. Hey, all you bosses, managers, supervisors, masters, if you will, in the room. Verse 25 says, for the wrong will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So now we shift gears a little bit. And we start thinking about the fact that to all who have been given authority in the scripture, you have been given a charge to shepherd and care for those in weaker positions under you. So your employees are not your property. The people that work under you do not exist to promote you. The people that work under you are not means to an end for you. You become the shepherd who is called to reflect the heart and nature of God in how he shepherds his people. And then if you understand the reality of even how God treats slavery, it has massive implications on how you should act at work as bosses, right? We care for them, that we nurture, we support, we look out for. We don't domineer. We don't swing our authority around like some kind of giant club pounding anyone in our way. But the authority given to Christians is given to serve God, to extend the kingdom of God, and to care for people that are under you. That is an absolute, non-negotiable part of what it means to be a Christian, is that you care for people. And you, like William Wilberforce, go, I am here for such a time as this. And I have been given people. I have been given a flock. You know, Jeff, it's not church. It's work. It's all church. You are the church. We're in a gym. So you go to work and you have a flock around you that God has called you to care for. Now, you still are a businessman who, you know, sometimes employees get fired. It doesn't mean that we put up with abuse on either end unnecessarily. But even in the way you let people go, you can still be a witness to Jesus. Even in the way you handle those different, different uh, difficult situations, you can show that you're trying to care for someone and love someone. And make sure that they're still doing well, all while also protecting your business as well. You can do that. You can have both. But the way, and it's important. The way that you wield your authority over people who are under you, especially unbelievers, will to some degree help them form an understanding of what God or at least what Christians are like. And, and someone might be on your staff or, or, or on your team or a coworker, whatever the case may be, who knows nothing about Christianity. They may be that guy that grabs that slavery pole and says, this is my issue. And they have no understanding about the reality of Christianity. But everyone in our culture knows enough about Christianity to know that if you're following Jesus, you're not supposed to be a jerk. They know that. And so to lead your business in such a way that does that, it, it is a You are cutting off the legs of our representation to people out from under us. Like, you're, you're, you're killing us. Like, don't do that. Your job is not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of you. And so we want to use our authority and use our and use our businesses and use all those things that God has gifted us with to promote the holiness and the grace and the goodness and the person of God. And so even you as a leader, you are shepherding the people that you have in such a way that you are trying to bring the character of God into an actual, visible, tangible manifestation right in front of them. You are, if you will, trying to mimic God for the people around you that they then might see past you to the real thing. That's what I'm going to do. This is what we're called to do. And again, understand the trend in the text, lest you think I'm just making this up. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, do not be harsh with them. Love them. Love them as Christ loved the church, he'll go on to say. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't provoke them to wrath. (laughs) Come in with your authority, just making your, your kids are not your slaves. They're actually my kids. And you read the teachings of Jesus and you see he actually cares about them quite a bit. Masters, or slaves, excuse me, or workers in our current context. Workers. Hey, work. Hard and heartily, not uh, not Eeyore Tigger. All right, although he kind of makes a mess of things. So like Tigger slash Pooh slash different cartoon altogether. Just not Eeyore. Like heartily. You should. You got to be the. We say this and we've heard this all the time. I hope you have, but it's true. You should be the best employee the company has. But I don't get paid enough. Heaven's coming. Your driveway will be gold. Chill out. But for now, you serve the kingdom of God, not them. They don't even know they're pawns in the game. So have fun with it. Serve Jesus, and be. The- you're, you're teaching people who don't want to hear about Jesus about Jesus all the time. It's sneaky and cool if you think about it. But masters bosses, managers, supervisors, what have you. You don't wield your authority thinking that one day you're not going to stand before God who is the true shepherd. You've been put in that spot by God. I worked hard for it. No, no, no. You could have been born in Africa, but God put you here. You could have been born disabled, but God gave you the mind and the talent and the abilities that you have now. You have been gifted by God with everything you have, including your job and your position at work or your position in the community or whatever it is. And he's given it to you as a mantle to represent him and to be a picture of the true shepherd until the day that the true shepherd comes. So we have work to do. Amen, church? Will you stand with me? Father, I pray that you would just, by your grace and by your Spirit, empower all of us to fulfill the roles that you've created us to fill. Whatever they are, I pray, God, you by your Spirit would empower us to reflect you in every area of life. And and to remember that we stand under you in every area of life. But Lord, may that not be a burden we find Satan that wants to whisper into people's ears, he's watching, he's watching. But Lord, instead may we realize the beauty and blessing that God, our adopted Father, Heavenly Father, and Creator of heaven and earth is for us and with us. That is a gift. And so, Lord, help us to be like Dad. Help us to reflect you in everything we do, And everywhere we go. And I pray specifically as people go to work, wherever that may be, may they understand who they are, who you are, and who the people around them are. May you empower them to work tirelessly and joyfully. May they understand that they do serve you, not whatever job that they're at. And may that bring them fulfillment and joy to know that they're part of the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord, that their testimonies would witness to people and just display your goodness and your grace and your grandeur so that the kingdom might be established, that the kingdom might be expanded. So will you bless our work as we work for you in whatever area that we are in? So We just thank you, Lord, for this day of rest for those who, who have that. And I pray, God, that now as we leave this place, Please, Lord, don't let this just be a sermon that we then forget and go about our lives. May we again remember the primary place of these changes is outside these walls. So may your spirit go with us. And may we take the gospel as well. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night, 630.